and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode 7.2, the second episode in our series on Olympic National Park. In today's episode, Brian speaks with Penny Wagner, Public Information Officer for Olympic National Park. Brian and Penny will talk about tips and recommendations for planning a trip to Olympic National Park. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience. If you enjoy listening to Everybody's National Parks, please tell your friends. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Olympic National Park. I'm here with Penny Wagner, Public Information Officer for Olympic National Park, and Penny started working for the National Park Service back in 2007 at Montezuma Castle in Arizona, which we actually, as a side note, just visited a few months ago and spent an afternoon there. So that's a pretty neat spot in and of itself. She's also been at Glacier Payne National Park, Redwood National Park, and she and her husband are both now, of course, at Olympic National Park. Welcome, Penny. Thanks for taking your time. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for talking with me today. Olympic National Park, it is not a small park, and there's so much to see and do, like some of our other large parks, but in particular with Olympic, there are so many can't-miss things. You know, I thought my brother and I did a pretty good job of sweeping through things over a five-day visit, but that was two guys that are in their 40s that were happy to stretch it a little bit. So I'm really excited to talk to you to see your thoughts about how to tackle this when one has their family with them for a week's vacation. So hopefully you're up for that challenge. Absolutely. And, you know, hearing a week is just exciting because one of the really sad things about working at the visitor center front desk is when folks come in and they only have a day to see the park. So I just want to help people maximize that opportunity. And, you know, sometimes people can manage to get three days at Olympic and they're still going to be able to pack in a lot, but there's always going to be things that you can't get to. And at least if folks have the ability to get a week to come see the peninsula, there are so many options and so much diversity that it's not at all hard to pack that in. Let's start there. When that person asks you sadly, I've got a day, I wouldn't even know where to start. What do you say? When I was working in the visitors and RV base here in Port Angeles, and so we're kind of at the base of the road that goes up to Hurricane Ridge. And so the first thing I would do is start by asking people, well, what are you most interested in seeing? Are you interested in the high elevation? Do you want to get up to Hurricane Ridge? And, you know, we definitely would start by looking at the webcam and saying, here's the conditions right now, because if there's not a lot of visibility, if you can't really see much, people might choose then to start heading around the peninsula instead if it's not kind of the ultimate weather up there. But I would always caution, well, just because it looks like that right now, 15, 20 minutes from now, that can also change. So if they're interested in seeing the mountains, and that's the first, that's where I would initially send people is take the 17-mile drive up to Hurricane Ridge. You're going to go from sea level up to 5,000 feet. You're going to have open, incredible, expansive views of the mountains, and it's the best vantage point to actually see Mount Olympus and the glaciers on Mount Olympus, the Blue Glacier and Terry Glacier in the Bailey Range. And there's some beautiful, easy walks for people to do there through the subalpine meadows. You're pretty much guaranteed to see deer. And depending on the time of the year, it's really beautiful wildflowers up there as well. 
and there's some longer hikes for folks who want to get a little farther away from the visitor center and maybe get aerobic activity in. Or there's easy paved walks for folks who just want to stay closer to the visitor center and get out into the meadow. So there's a good range of options up there. And that's really the best place in the park, you know, the only paved road that takes you into the high elevation. So that's a great option for families and for folks of varying abilities. If folks kind of live in the mountains, a lot of times I'll have folks that come in from Colorado or places where they're already in the mountains. What they really want to see, they want to get out to the ocean. And so I want to make sure people understand that it's going to be, you know, an hour and a half. They want to go out to Rialto Beach or a couple hours to get down to the Claylock area. So the coast is a bit farther. And if you're coming through from Seattle all the way up to Port Angeles, you're going to have to continue around the peninsula to get out to the ocean. But sometimes that's where people want to head is they don't live near the ocean. They want that kind of coastal experience. And Olympics certainly it's special with this protected coastline that's undeveloped. So we have these wilderness areas along the coast and then areas that aren't designated wilderness but are also still very wild and the sea stacks and tide pools and depending on what the tide is doing tide pooling is a great option so I would with families especially getting the kids out onto the coast when they've got low tide and they can explore those tide pools and see those creatures that's a pretty moving experience for folks that haven't ever been to a tide pool before but again with one day if you're really pushing hard and you come early you could potentially get up to Hurricane Ridge and all the way out to the coast. But if you're expecting to get all the way back to Seattle in the same night, then that can really be quite a push. And so I wouldn't recommend that for families with young kids in the car because you end up just doing so much driving. You know, we start at the front desk by opening up the map. And I like to show people the diversity on the map so they can see where they are, where Hurricane Ridge is, where we have our high elevation area, where we have our lowland old growth forest around Lake Crescent and the Elwha and Solduck. And then out on the western side of the park, show them where the rainforest areas are on the western side with our valleys, the Ho Rainforest, the Quinault Rainforest, and then our coastal stretch and really give them a sense of what is the distance we're talking about? How long does it take to get from these places? Open up the park newspaper, show them the chart that shows the mileages and times, and really give them a sense of, okay, here's my opportunities. There's three very distinct ecosystems that we can check out. There's going to be great hiking for a range of abilities at each location. If we've got families, we're going to have nice, easy, shorter hikes that we can do to really explore that environment. So how long do I want to spend in the car and what do I want to see? And we can make that happen. One thing I think distinct about Olympic than some of the other parks, like Yellowstone has the Grand Loop Trail. You know, Zion has the Canyon Scenic Road where there is a main thoroughfare, which if you have a day or a few hours, you can drive up and down, get out of your car, walk a little bit. Olympic really doesn't have that. My brother and I, when we planned our trip, I planned out our itinerary and he looked at it. He's a local and he said, you know, that's a lot of driving and it's not direct driving. And like the classic big brother, I yeah, yeah, I'm to death. Then I realized when we got out there, we did a lot of circuitous driving to get from one spot to the other, which again, worked out. We were two guys and, and we were having a good time. But I think it's important that with Olympic, getting around can be a little bit of a challenge, especially, I guess this is the next question to ask you. There's some road work coming up too this year that people should be thoughtful about. Yes. And that is an important thing that we do at the outset when we're showing people the map 
is just the fact that Olympic is like a big wagon wheel with basically a bunch of spokes and no hubs. So you can get in and out on various roads, but Highway 101 is going to be your drive around the peninsula. And from the 101, you can access into these different park areas, but there's no road that goes across it. And so that means you're very reliant on Highway 101 getting you around the peninsula to access these different park areas. And so this summer is the second year of the three-year Highway 101 Rehabilitation Project. And this is happening at Lake Crescent. And when people are planning their visit, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, there's going to be half-hour delays during the work hours, which are only on the weekdays. So if you're traveling on a weekend, then you would just need to be prepared for temporary traffic signals, so short delays, wherever they have to have those signals on that 12-mile stretch of Highway 101 at Lake Crescent. And then on the shoulder seasons, there's a possibility of having four-hour delays during the daytime between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. And so referencing the website and checking the alerts page and checking on the road project page, well, bring your attention to any of these scheduled delays. And these are announced at least a week in advance, if not two weeks, so people can plan to either be through the Lake Crescent area before 9 a.m. or after 1 p.m. Or you can also take the alternate state route, Highway 112, which is a scenic byway along the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and that will bypass the lake area. And so because Highway 101 is a really important corridor for commuting from the east to the west or vice versa on the peninsula, it does affect the commuting traffic, the commuting public that goes back and forth, but also our visitors who are coming to the park. So I just want everybody that's coming to know that that work is happening and to check the website in advance and be ready for those delays and slower travel through that area during the weekdays. Fair warning. We have to navigate some road construction here this summer. Now, let's assume we're the classic family coming in. We're coming through Port Angeles. We have a week. We talked about tide pools hitting the ocean. We talked about glaciers, rainforest already. And how would you fit those puzzle pieces together, generally speaking, for a family that are hitting the parks? What do you think some things that they should see and take some time out, even navigating some of this construction? What are some things that they should make sure they go and see with that week that they have? I often suggest to people, if they can, to break up their time, especially with that much time, to break it up in half if that's possible and spend, you know, a couple of days on the northern side of the peninsula around Port Angeles and then be able to stay somewhere on the west side for the remaining time or vice versa, depending on how you arrive at the peninsula. And that way you're not spending so much time each day trying to get to your location. So if you were to stay around Port Angeles or Lake Crescent area, either at one of the lodges within the park or in lodging outside of the park, then you don't have to factor in so much of the travel time. And you are already kind of located here so you can plan your day around any of the road work that's happening and try to get to your location earlier so that you're not stuck behind one of those longer delays. In that way, you have more time to actually be in that spot. And so around the Port Angeles area, it's easy to spend a full day at Hurricane Ridge. There's enough to do on the drive up and up at Hurricane Ridge with the trails and the visitor center and doing a ranger guided program and the junior ranger program that having just a day to be able to spend up there as a family is plenty for the day. And then you could spend another day going out to Lake Crescent. There's some beautiful walks at Lake Crescent going out to Mary Mare Falls or spending time at the lake. 
there's a great trail on the northern side of the lake, the Spruce Railroad Trail. Unfortunately, there is a little bit of work happening this year on it that will continue next year. So this year would be a better year to go visit the Spruce Railroad Trail the next year because they will be doing the final portion of that multi-year project to pave it and make it a multi-use accessible trail. So this year would be better than next year when it will be completely closed. But there's options around Lake Crescent. You can also spend kind of a day in the old growth forests that are in the lowland areas. So around Port Angeles, you've got Hurricane Ridge, you've got Lake Crescent, the Elwha, and even the Solduck Valley. So there's plenty to do in either another day or two just exploring those valleys on that side of the park near to Lake Crescent, seeing some beautiful waterfalls. I highly recommend getting out to Merrimere at Lake Crescent and getting out to Solduck Falls in the Solduck Valley. And those are great hikes for families because they're shorter hikes. They're not strenuous. And, you know, my five-year-old can walk all the way out to Solduck Falls or to Merrimere Falls on his own. There might be a little carrying involved, but those are doable for families. And they end up making a nice day where you can plan a picnic and you can get out and be in the old growth forest, see these huge trees and really kind of immerse yourself in those areas. So my brother and I, we did Soul Duck Falls and I can attest that you're right. That is a family-friendly and relatively uh, less strenuous hike up there. And there were a lot of families there. You touched on one thing that I've also thought about is not that anyone's in a rush to see anything, but I was struck by how big the park is, of course, but how on some particular hikes, you can be in one ecosystem and at the end of the hike be in another. And maybe this is a bad example. You mentioned a few good examples, but uh, the whole river trail, of course, ends up at a glacier. Now that's a long, long hike, but maybe there are some other things. You know, My brother and I, we hiked into the Enchanted Valley in the southern end. So we were able to see a few different ecosystems. So it's a big, big park, but I was really struck about how you can quickly go from one ecosystem to another in a relatively short walk. So it's, do you have anything like that where suddenly, not just for sake of time, but just it strikes you into how diverse Olympic is and how once you've hit some sort of elevation or what have you, that how quickly the ecosystems can change. Do you have any other uh, recommended hikes that kids, especially and families would like to see a few different aspects of the park in one walk. So my immediate thought is just that without doing those longer hikes like you're talking about where you hike in 10, 15 miles, those are when you can really see that change. But for families or when you're not able to do those longer hikes, that really happens on your exploration of the peninsula. And that will really strike folks as they come onto the peninsula. And all of this is a result of the mountains in the heart of the peninsula. We have the peninsula goes from sea level up to just below 8,000 feet. And so all these mountains in the middle are basically like they're wringing out the clouds like sponges. And all of this precipitation is falling on the western side of the peninsula. So you go from having 12 to 14 feet of rain in our temperate rainforest valleys on the west side to going to 14 to 17 inches. And let's say like the Squim area, Port Angeles has a little bit more rain, but you have prickly pear cactus that you can find in little pockets around Squim. And then you have temperate rainforest on the other side of these mountains on the peninsula. So we're talking about a huge change with this rain shadow effect that you get from the mountains. So when people come from Seattle and they come around the peninsula from east to west, you're seeing this incredible gradation in the ecosystems. And that's what's pretty amazing on one long day. If you start in Port Angeles, you drive up to 5,000 feet and you see the subalpine environment and you walk in those subalpine meadows. 
and then you come back down to sea level and you drive around the peninsula and you go through the lowland forest and you see Lake Crescent and these river valleys that are in these lowland forests. And you come around to the west and all of a sudden you're in areas that get 12 to 14 feet of rain and the trees are enormous. And then you have this coastal area. It's so impressive. Living in the desert as a kid, getting you know getting 10 to 12 inches of rain, and then moving to a place like this where we have these temperate rainforests is just shocking. You're making up for all the lost rain you had as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think those longer hikes that take you from you know the mouths of these valleys back up, and especially the whole rainforest where you get all the way up to the glaciers, those are incredible hikes. Just to take you from that one elevation all the way up that way. I can't think of a good example on a shorter trail, but I do feel like that's one of the really special things about the peninsulas. You know, the peninsula is 40 miles across, so there's just this huge change that you can see as you drive around. The park protects almost a million acres. 95% of it is designated wilderness. And so a lot of times the people who come, they're never going to get into the heart of the park. But you have that wilderness experience when you are able to get out and walk out the whole river trail the first few miles. That's a great thing for a family to do if they're up for a little bit longer of a hike. You know, hike in a few miles. If you can go five, you can get out to Five Mile Island and, you know, it'd be a 10-mile round trip. So it really depends on what your family is up for. But that's a relatively flat trail. So you'd get a really incredible hike through the whole rainforest. And if you can't go that far, then do the Hall of Mosses Trail from the Ho Visitor Center. And there's not a lot of places in the entire world that you can experience temperate rainforest. And so when people come to the park, I really want to highlight that for them, that this is an incredibly important opportunity to show your kids what this is. Get into the rainforest and see what that's like. Look at the different colors of the moss, you know, feel what it's like to stand below these enormous trees and what happens to an ecosystem when you get 12 to 14 feet of rain a year and get in there and there, you know, that sense of wonder that your kids have looking around them and seeing the plants and seeing the elk that are in the rainforest. It's a moving experience and there's not a lot of opportunities. Here you are on the peninsula and you've got this opportunity. And I just want everybody to be able to experience temperate rainforest. It's special. It really is. My brother and I were there, and it was a very special spot. In fact, we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to Ho. Not to give anything else short shrift, but I thought Ho was pretty special. And I was so excited. If I list all the things I want to see, we want to see in the national parks, Ho was one of the elements that we certainly wanted to see. So, And it delivered. So we were really excited about that, and I can't recommend it enough. We mentioned a little bit about some trails, some falls, the dynamism of the park culturally. Some of the historical aspects of the park with native peoples, also with logging, where do you recommend families should go to kind of have that experience, to understand who was here before and what was here before there was a national park? One of the best places to go is not actually within the park, but a lot of people are interested in going out towards Cape Flattery to see the farthest northwestern point in the lower 48 states. And if you can get out to Cape Flattery, I would highly recommend it. And there's the Macaw Indian Reservation out in that section of the peninsula on the farthest northwestern tip. And as you go up to Mia Bay, as you're kind of entering into the community there, there's the Macaw Culture Museum. And that was built to house thousands of artifacts that were discovered as part of the Ozette excavation, the archaeological work that happened out there on the Ozette coast. So the Ozette area is now part of Olympic National Park. But that was a pretty textbook example of, it's used in textbooks of an archaeological excavation and 
learning about this community of people with a rich traditions and a long cultural history of living on the coast and having that connection out there on the coast. And you see these incredible artifacts that were preserved underneath this landslide that happened hundreds of years ago. And that really gives you a sense of their culture and their life ways and their technology, very rich culture. And that's on the peninsula, I would say, the very best place to go and see artifacts from that prehistorical time. At the park, we have affiliated tribes, local tribes all around the peninsula. And they all have very rich oral traditions about the park. And their history here, you know, we've got 10,000 years ago, there's human occupation on the peninsula. There's, you know, mastodon kill sites that were found in Squims. There's a very long-standing tradition of people living on the peninsula and this being their home and part of their oral traditions. And so that's a thing to understand. European settlement didn't really happen until the late 1800s. And after that, logging and kind of the commercial aspect of the natural resources here. But long before that, there was the history and lives of people who called this place home and have a very deep connection to the areas of the park and you know all the way up to Hurricane Ridge where there's archaeological sites and evidence of people using the high elevations. I think that scattered throughout the park, you'll find in our interpreted exhibit information about the people who lived here before. But for a museum experience, I would highly recommend going to Nia Bay and seeing that Macaw Museum. It's just astounding the artifacts that were recovered from that excavation there. And getting out to Cape Flattery and seeing that landscape on that coastal section is incredible. Again, I'd second that. We didn't make it there, but my brother and I did camp in the backcountry at Cape Alava, starting out of Ozette. And, you know, we felt, without being too mystical here, we felt the ghosts. You know, it was right where the OZ Indians would have their fishing sites and their own camping sites. And we felt that pretty strongly. So it was a great spot to kind of feel that cultural history as well. Now, some nitty gritty on planning your trip. You have front country campsites, you have back country campsites, of course. And I want to put you on the spot here in a second. But in terms of front country camping, back country camping, do you have any particular recommendations that you think are great spots? Let's start with the front country campground. We have a lot of campgrounds in the park that are open year round, and then there are some that do close in the off season. The majority of our campgrounds are first come, first serve. And so for some folks, you know, they really want to be able to make reservations. And there are two campgrounds in the park that take reservations, and those are Claylock and Solduck. And the Solduck campground is operated actually by the Solduck Hot Springs Resort. So you can make reservations for Solduck from the end of March through the end of October when the reservation ends. So we should talk about that a bit because Solduck has hot springs, of course, as you mentioned. I don't want to gloss over that. So there's a, a particular attraction there, which again, my brother and I took advantage of, where you can go soak in natural hot springs after maybe a long week or some long hikes, which is uh, probably why you have a reservation system because it's probably in demand. The campground is near the resort and the resort, they operate these pools They're outdoor pools that are cemented pools that are filled with the water from the natural hot springs. You know, a lot of people really enjoy that and want to go to the resort and have that experience. So even if you're not staying at the resort, you can still pay the resort to swim at the pools and spend a great day with kids. There's also a, you know, freshwater pool there as well. And so that's a lot of fun for families. You can take a nice day, hike up to the falls, and then come back to the hot springs and relax in the pools. So that is a lot of fun for folks. And the campground is nearby, and you can make reservations for the campground and then go over to the resort and, you know, pay to swim in the pools. So that is operated by 
all of our lodges within the park, except for Claylock, are all operated by Aramark. So Claylock is Delaware North, and their website is theclaylocklodge.com. The rest of them are operated by Aramark, and they are under the same website. You can go to one website and hit all the different, like Lake Crescent Lodge and Soul Duck Hot Springs Resort and Log Cabin Resort at Olympic National Parks with an S. Dot com and then you can link to Soul Duck or Lake Crescent Lodge or, or Log Cabin Resort and you can look at what the pools look like and find out more about those. But for the campgrounds, you want to go to recreation.gov and you can make your reservation that way. There's also first come first serve, but you know if you prefer to know you've got your campsite, that is an option for you to do for Soul Duck and for Claylock. Claylock only takes reservations in the summer from June to September, June 13th to September 23rd for the 2018 season and Claylock is a very busy campground this year for the first time we do have about 20 or so sites that are first come first serve but it's hard when you're coming from far away you want to make sure you have a spot so they're definitely recommended reservations in the summertime to just make sure you've got something but at Claylock you're right on the coast you're right above the beach you're right there you can walk right down to the beaches so a lot of times families like to be close to the beach so for the west side Claylock is busier than Mora, which would be farther north and close to Rialto Beach. So I really like Mora. I think that, you know, you're in the forest, so you're a little bit farther from Rialto Beach. You're still in the forest. You're a little bit protected from those winds that come off the coast. But you're not too far away. You're just a short, quick drive up the road to Rialto Beach. And I love to take my kids to Rialto Beach to play and to climb on the driftwood and walk up that long stretch of coastline there. So I think Morris definitely gets busy, especially in the summertime. And we're seeing more use of those campgrounds, you know, every year. But coming midweek, I really like Morris for families a lot. And then if you want to stay in the rainforest, then the Ho has a great campground also right near the Ho River and in the rainforest. Our front country experience was at the Ho campground, and my brother and I actually got a campsite on the Ho River. So, you know, falling asleep, listening to the river was just magic. So we were very lucky and actually even doubly lucky. It rained only a little. We did not get completely soaked. So it was a big win for us. And also you mentioned the lodges. So there's Quinault Lodge, K-Lock. And of course, Soul Duck. So I warned you I was going to put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite? They're all just in these different locations. So I would choose one based on the kind of environment you want to stay in. They all kind of have similar qualities. Quinault's actually operated by the National Forest there. And so the south shore of Lake Quinault is in the National Forest. And then the north shore of the lake is where the National Park area is. So we don't operate a lodge down there, but the forest does. And it's also operated by Aramark. So you'll find it on that one website. And Lake Quinault Lodge is a historic lodge, so that's very similar. All three, actually, Lake Quinault, Solda Hot Springs Resort, and Lake Crescent have that kind of historic quality. The especially Lake Crescent Lodge and the history there, and Lake Quinault Lodge. We're talking, you know, hundred-year-old lodges, so those have that kind of feel to them. Lake Quinault Lodge has an indoor swimming pool, so that's kind of interesting. And then Claylock Lodge is just so beautiful with the cabins right on the bluff overlooking the ocean. So that kind of experience is really special too. So I would say it's hard to choose between them and I'm not just saying that 
because we each have such special qualities. No matter which one you pick, you're going to be in a beautiful location. Oh, and you know what? There's also, just to let you know, Log Cabin Resort. It's off East Beach Road at Lake Crescent, so it's on the other side of the lake from Lake Crescent Lodge. Log Cabin Resort, this year, we're building new log cabins out there. So this year, visitors to the Log Cabin Resort area are going to have some brand new cabins that they can rent out. So those have some pretty magnificent views looking across the lake. So that's something new for folks to check out at Log Cabin. Oh, that's great. That's cool. Well, I just have a couple more questions. One, just in general, mixed-use trails. Do you have mixed-use trails? In other words, do you have trails where there could be equestrians on the trails as well as hikers? Do you have mountain biking availability within the park? The Spruce Railroad Trail is one that I would highlight for the multi-use trail. And that one is it's the only trail in the park where bikes are allowed. And it's actually a piece of this really awesome project on the peninsula that runs from basically Port Townsend all the way across to the ocean. So it's part of the Olympic Discovery Trail. So if you are an avid biker, I would highly recommend checking out the Olympic Discovery Trail website because this is a system of trails that is still underway. The project's still underway. So there's still portions of it that they're working on building out. But at Lake Crescent, we've got that four-mile section of the lake that we're working on in part of this project. And by the end of next year, it'll be caved. And so the trail is a widened trail that's for everybody, wheelchairs, horses, bikes. So it's big enough to accommodate everybody. And it's going to be a part of this Olympic Discovery Trail. So the park doesn't have any other trails where bikes are allowed, but a lot of people bike on the roads that are within the park. Every year in August, I believe, there's a ride the hurricane where we have an event on the Hurricane Ridge Road, and people much hardier than I bike that 17 miles up to the Hurricane Ridge. And then right now, people with the Elwha Valley Road closed to vehicle traffic, a lot of people will bike up that road or bike into the whole rainforest. So there isn't any other options for trails within the park. So that's why I would definitely recommend checking out the Olympic Discovery Trail and the sections of that that are available. But there are a number of backcountry trails going into the wilderness areas where people take their pack in. They've got equestrian use on those trails. And so some of those are not suitable for equestrian use. And we've got that information on our website. So we do have that multi-use in the park. I'm just in awe of folks riding bikes up to Hurricane Ridge. In 2002, Danielle and I had rented a Chevy Geo that could barely make it up to Hurricane Ridge (laughs) on its own. So I can't imagine the bikes making it up there. So kudos to those folks. Just a quick etiquette question. When one is on a trail and they're hikers, bicyclists, horses, who has the right of way? What's the etiquette? That is a really good question. Every year in April, we have National Park Week and Junior Ranger Day. We like to have an event at our visitor center and invite the backcountry horsemen to come. And we have our trails crew that uses mules. And we like to do a presentation for the public and have, you know, junior rangers come. And, you know, a lot of times people aren't used to seeing horses on the trails when they're hiking. And so it's a good way to kind of raise awareness for people that are going to use public lands and trails where you have kind of that mixed use and just what to do when you see animals. And I think that having that respect for one another 
and stopping when you see the horses and making sure that they see you and they know you're coming. Because, you know, everybody wants to have that positive experience out on the trail. And so really for people that are doing the front country hiking, those aren't the areas where, you know, you're going to see horses. These are folks that are going out into the backcountry and into the wilderness and those particular trails. It's not something you often have when you're just, let's say, on the Hall of Mosses, you know, those are areas where you would have horses. So you don't generally share the trail in any of the front country trails around the visitor centers or places like that. And since there's no bikes anywhere else except for at Spruce Railroad, people are not seeing bikes on the trail. But luckily that trail at Lake Crescent is a very wide trail. So there's plenty of room, 12 feet wide, plenty of room for everybody to use that trail and just be respectful of other people, of their space. Speaking of uh, four-legged animals, Bears. How should we be thoughtful about bears when we're camping in the front country and in the back country? How should we store our foodstuffs? I'm really glad you asked that question. So here at Olympic on the peninsula, there's only black bear. Um, Brown bear has actually never made it to the peninsula. And we're very fortunate at Olympic to not have the same kind of um, wildlife issues that other parks experience where you have bears coming into campgrounds, breaking into cars, Unfortunately, there's parks where the bears have keyed into, like, the easiest cars to break into. So at Olympic, it's really important that at Front Country Campgrounds, all your food and scented items can stay in your car. So never leave any food or scented items in your tent. You can either leave them in the trunk of your car or you can use the provided food lockers that are at the Front Country Campgrounds. And in the backcountry, you're going to want to either hang your food if that's feasible or if you're in places where hanging your food is not possible, we rent bear cans for free, animal-resistant food containers for free from the Park Wilderness Information Centers. When you get your backcountry permit, you can borrow one. And they're required out on the coast. And they're required for the coast not so much for bears but because of raccoons and rodents who will absolutely get into your food if you try to hang it. So it's really important that you use those animal-resistant food containers or bear cans, or if you're in a front country campground, just make sure you're storing all of that stuff in the trunk of your car or in provided food storage lockers there in the campground. And are those canisters available in shoulder season as well? Yeah, and there's multiple places around the park where you can pick those up. Either if you're coming up from the eastern side of the peninsula, you can pick those up in Port Angeles at the visitor center or on the west side of the park on Quinault. There's the South Shore Ranger Station that's open during the week. So you'll want to plan ahead. You know, a lot of people come with their cans already. They buy one or you can borrow them from the park. So if you're planning a backcountry trip, I would definitely call the Wilderness Information Center and and find out the best location for you to pick up your bear cam when you're coming. My brother and I made a mistake because we were camping at Cape Alava, backcountry, and when we left Forks, we thought, well, we can get it at the campsite or, you know, at the ranger station in Ozette, or we can get it at the general store right there. Well, general store, it was shoulder season. General store didn't have it. And the ranger station said that shoulder season, we don't have any. And so we were kind of stuck. I guess we did the wrong thing. We hung up our food and we, we tried to do the practice of, you know, triangulate from our cook site, campsite to where we hung it up. We had no problems, but, you know, we saw on our hike down the coast, we saw scat everywhere. So they were not invisible. The bears we knew were there. So we got away with one, but in retrospect, we should have called ahead and said, what's the bear canister situation? And when in doubt, if you see a canister in Port Angeles or in Forks, just get it there because you don't want to be stuck without one. 
It's, it's a really good tip, and that's all about figuring out where those locations are before you come because it's going to be a little bit different in the shoulder season than it is in the summertime, and making sure you know where connecting with the Wilderness Information Center before you come to make sure you know where those locations are and calling ahead to make sure you can get one. Well, listen, Penny, thank you for all your time. I have one last question for you, and we kind of asked this question for all of our guests. So you've been in the National Park Service for a little while now, and you've been in several parks, but just for Olympic. Do you have a particular special Olympic National Park moment, a time where you just had a blissful moment that occurred to you either on the job or off the job? And can you share that with us? Absolutely. I can think of a few, but the one that really stands out to me was when I first moved to Olympic. So I spent the majority of my life growing up in Arizona and living in the desert in Arizona and then moving up to Alaska and coming to Redwood and then coming to Olympic and taking my kids. When we first moved here, I hadn't had a chance to get out to the coast yet. And so it was our first day exploring the coast and we hadn't seen the ocean yet. So we were driving Highway 101 from Port Angeles. We went past Lake Crescent. Just before Forks, we took 110 out towards La Push and we still hadn't seen the ocean yet. And we pulled into the parking lot at the second beach trailhead. Still can't see the ocean yet. And you start out on this trail and you hike down through the forest, through the kind of coastal rainforest. And you're hiking along and you start to hear the waves. And I can tell my kids, my daughter was only about one at the time, but my son, you know, is four and a half. And he can hear the ocean and he could still remember Alaska and the ocean and living in California, being by the ocean. So he's getting excited to see this. And we come out and we pop out at the top of the bluff and then you can look out and it's just magical that you see the sea stacks in the water and you see the big waves coming in the Pacific Ocean and all this driftwood. Unlike anything I'd ever seen before, I'd never seen so much driftwood. And we come down the steps onto the beach and scramble over the top of the driftwood, which my kids just love. And you just look out on the ocean and there's just something so moving about feeling that bra power of the ocean and seeing all this wood that's just like toothpicks that just shoves onto the shore and and the waves and that just the pristineness of that environment is magical and I just want that for everybody. We have so much hustle and bustle in our lives and we get from one day to the next and doing what we need to do and everybody needs those to be in nature and to have that sense of wonder and awe at our public lands and our wilderness and our oceans and our forests and Olympic has so much of that for people and it was just a special day as a family to be in the park at this place at the beach and just experience it It was beautiful sunny day perfect weather those are the kinds of magical moments with your kids that everybody needs what a great coda to end on thank you very much (laughs) Penny Wagner public information officer for Olympic National Park thank you for all the great tips and insights you have me excited to come on back this time with my wife and kids, not just my brother. Thanks, Penny. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find show notes and links to resources discussed in this episode on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on Support Our Show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.